Rebecca Schrader has been having this recurring nightmare for the last four years. Every once in a while, there will be like a little dream. She'll be walking along the beach near where she lives in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and then suddenly... And I see someone holding like a grass cart, but I'm like, no! She's thinking, where did this cart come from? What am I supposed to do about it? Her heart is racing and it's really scary. I think I just go into like a crazy mode of like, oh my god, you need to report that, and oh my god, maybe you should be reporting it to me, that's me, what do I do? That's because Rebecca is the Asian Carp Project Manager at the Invasive Species Center in Sault Ste. Marie in Ontario, Canada. Her job is to raise awareness about Asian carp around the Canadian shores of the Great Lakes. Sault Ste. Marie is on the St. Mary's River, which connects Lake Huron to Lake Superior, and it's also the border between Michigan's Upper Peninsula and Ontario, Canada. And when I talked to Rebecca, it was still winter there. I don't know how to like convert this into to Fahrenheit, but it's minus 20 here today, Celsius. I'm not really sure what that equates to in U.S. <laughs> temperature. It's very cold. You walk outside and it's just like, you know when you like pull something out of like the deep freezer and it like hurts your teeth, that like ice, that's what it sounds like when you walk on the ground here and it's like, you walk out and your like nose freezes immediately. That is really cold. That's, um, I think that's like negative four in Fahrenheit. Sault Ste. Marie in Ontario feels like it's a world away from Chicago, where the electric carp barrier is. <laughs> it feels like the big head and silver carp invasion in Canada is such a long way off, but I guess we don't really know. So it's not only the jumping carp that Rebecca's concerned about, though. There's also evidence that grass carp are spawning in rivers in Ohio that feed Lake Erie. And it's also possible that that sort of migration could be bypassed completely if a carp was just accidentally released in the water on the Ontario shores of the Great Lakes. And Rebecca said that that last scenario is probably the most likely way that a carp would make it up that far north. So the big head and silver carp population front is in the U.S. in Illinois, and Rebecca is more than 600 miles away in a whole other country. Right. It makes me think about how carp are an international problem, like when a fish can just migrate between two countries. And it opens up this whole political dimension for stopping carp and not allowing them to migrate, like into the Great Lakes. Yeah, like international politics too, not just like states having to work together. It's like actually countries having to negotiate like where the carp are. And I could imagine being in Ontario and hearing that carp were spawning in tributaries to Lake Erie on the American side and just feeling so frustrated because you truly can't do anything about it other than just preparing, which is what Rebecca's doing. And most of her work is centered around outreach and teaching people how to identify the four species of invasive carp before they arrive in Canadian waters. But we know, you know that like once an invasive species establishes, it's very, very rare that you'll ever completely remove it from the system. And we know also that prevention is so much cheaper than it is to control something. Uh, the amount of money people spend on control annually for things that are already here that, that we have to control, um, it's a lot more than what you would spend on trying to prevent something from establishing. She goes to events and answers people's questions about carp. She helps run an Asian carp aquarium exhibit at the Toronto Zoo. And she's even used fishing Instagram influencers to help get the word out about these species. 
fishing Instagram influencers? Like, I don't think I'm familiar with them. If you go on Instagram, I think her handle is she loves to fish. She's really cheerful and catches these enormous fish and is just like a really engaging person. And then she did this whole sponsored carp content (laughs) where um, she was posting all of this educational content about Asian carp and doing like carp identification stuff. That's such a creative idea. I know. They have this YouTube video where she's walking around the Toronto Zoo explaining what the carp look like and like what they could do if they ever made it up into Ontario and the lakes in that region. Yeah. And and then like the rest of her content is like her taking her friends out fishing or winning fishing tournaments. Um or photos of her dog. And then then there's just this Asian carp content. Um yeah, and Rebecca said that that like was pretty successful and they got a lot of traction. That's amazing. I asked Rebecca what she thinks the day would be like if carp ever made it as far north as Sault Ste. Marie. It's kind of like a daunting job every day to like try and protect the Great Lakes from something so scary like Asian carps, but um, it's really worth it. I do, I do get anxious that like they'll pop up, and but I really hope not. I'm, I'm really optimistic that, that they won't and that we're doing really good work. As far as working with the U.S. and other partners go, Rebecca sounded positive. I mean, all invasive species outreach and and all invasive species work in general, I think everyone is doing really great work and we're all doing our best, so I'm, I'm really optimistic. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Sydney. And you're listening to Introduced. So we've talked a lot about Asian carp in our own backyard, like here in the Great Lakes and even in the South, but carp haven't actually been here for very long. They've been a problem for about 40 years. And when I say a problem, I mean that you can just go on Google and find articles talking about the carp rampage and the most hated fish on the Mississippi, Americans poison, and the carp crisis. That's so dramatic. It is. Like, you can really tell <laughs> what people feel about, <laughs> about these fish. But on the other side of the world, in China, people have been fishing for them and farming them for thousands of years. Remember how I talked briefly with Dwayne Chapman, a research fish biologist for the U.S. Geological Survey? Yeah, the guy who um, worked with carp in Hungary and Lake Balaton? Yes. That's just the start of Duane's research on carp. He's one of the leading carp experts in the U.S., and if I had questions about Asian carp, Duane would be able to answer them. And what I really wanted to ask about was silver and bighead, grass and black carp in their native range. While they're reviled here, how do people see them in China? There are a lot of potential definitions for the term Asian carp. Um, Mm -hmm. One, in the United States, we very often talk about Asian carps. We mean those four species, the big head carp, the silver carp, the grass carp, and the black carp. But there are a lot of species of carp native to Asia. And there are other carp species here in the United States and Canada that, um, that also have Asian origins. 
and that are present here that we don't call Asian carps. And then on top of that, there's a, you know, the term has is somewhat derogatory and uh, it's it can be culturally, culturally insensitive because the, you know, those four species are uh, species of very high importance and, and, uh, and they're actually, um, instead of being reviled, they're actually uh, very, very important and very loved in, yeah. uh, in Asia. You know, sometimes you'll hear in this country that they're, uh, that the silver carp would be a delicacy there. It was not so much a delicacy as, mm-hmm. you know, a staple. It's a relatively low-cost fish, but very, very important in Chinese cuisine and in the culture. This kind of blew my mind hearing about how different this fish is viewed um, after knowing, like, talking to people about it here in the U.S. And I definitely wanted to hear more, so I got us a meeting with Dr. Yushun Chen, a scientist who studies fish and aquatic habitats. Um, so I'm Yushin Chen uh, from Institute of Hydrobiology, Chinese Academy of Sciences. We had a nice evening chat with Dr. Chen, but it was in the morning for him. He lives in Wuhan, China, close to the Yangtze River. What does it look like for someone who's never been there before? Like if you were going to go for a walk down by the river, what would you see? Yeah, um, I guess the best thing is to bring you guys next time you're here. <laughs> uh, but uh, I can tell you a little bit right now. We just below the dams, the Zoba Dam and the Three Gorges. That's in Yichang. That's another city. So uh, we are just uh, down, downstream of those dams. So, very huge, you know, and also the water downstream is very clean because of the dams, you know, prevent the sediments. I've like heard about the Three Gorges Sand, but I had to look up a picture of it after we talked to him and I, it's so big, like I couldn't comprehend what I was seeing. Um, yeah, isn't it one of the biggest dams in the world? Yeah, I think it is. I read NASA scientists calculated that the shift of water mass stored by the dams would increase the length of Earth's day by points, 0.06 microseconds. <laughs> and make the earth slightly more round in the middle and flat at the poles <laughs> because it holds back this enormous volume of water. And I, oh, that's so crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? Yeah, so that's the dam to set the scene. <laughs> Yushin started studying carp because um, they're a really important species, both culturally and economically. And he explained that in his region, carp are a diet mainstay. So, um, especially in the past, now still recently, um, people here view the civil cup and big cup, cup um, like you guys view chickens. For whatever reason, people in America have a way different relationship with these fish. And if anything, we'll be more likely to use them in bait or as dog food, but you don't hear about people eating them like you do in China. But the other reason that Yushin started studying carp was because they are actually seeing pretty significant decreases in carp population due to fishing pressure and also habitat loss across China. In the wild, it sounds like their like carp, carp populations are really on the decline. 
but farmers there have learned to raise them in aquaculture ponds. Over the past thousand or more years, silver, bighead, black, and grass carp have been farmed in lakes and rivers around China. And Duane was telling me that fishermen there would fish the baby carp out of the rivers and bring them to these aquaculture ponds where they could tend to them. Um, but that changed in the 1960s when scientists discovered how to get the carp to spawn in these ponds. So they no longer had to go out and get the fish and bring them back. So that made things a lot more efficient. And when they discovered in the 1960s how to spawn the fish, they could put just the right number of each one of the four species into a pond and get incredible growth rates and raise a tremendous amount of fish uh, in a very small area. Wow. And the four fish feed in different, um, they feed on different things. You know, the grass carp is eats vegetation. Um, the silver and bighead carp eat plankton, but they eat different size classes of, of plankton. Mm -hmm. And then the black carp eats snails and mussels. And so you could raise all four of them in the pond and they would eat different things and not compete too much with, the, with each other. And so the, the abundance of uh, the amount of flesh that they could produce in these ponds really went through the roof. I never realized how well the four species exist together. I feel like that's something that's super ignored from when we talk about these fish here in America. But I don't know, there's something like really wholesome feeling about how balanced that is. It is. Like, I kind of thought that these four species being called Asian carp in America was kind of like, they were like either randomly placed together in this group or they all kind of were introduced at the same time here. So we labeled them all the same, but um, it was really cool to hear that they've been, they've like kind of coexist super well together and they've been farmed because of that. Yeah. So meanwhile, also around that same time in the eighties, these same four species of fish were escaping the ponds in the U.S. and they were starting to move around. And our country had this new problem to solve. But we didn't have any experience with these new fish. Same fishes, you know, but a different, you know, point of view on both sides. Did anyone in the U.S. think about learning how these fish were being caught back in China? Because it seems like we could really have used that knowledge to help us understand how to manage carp better. Yeah, there actually hadn't been that much collaboration because this was kind of during the Cold War years when carp were like becoming a problem in the U.S. and our two countries weren't doing much research together. Um, and it's also interesting, it just, I love thinking about how global politics impacts invasive species. Like, you know how Yushun was talking about how um, the carp that were introduced to the U.S. around this time actually probably came from like Southeast Asia, not China, because like at that point, China and the U.S. weren't even like doing any trade. Yeah. And Duane didn't start contacting researchers in China about carp until pretty recently when he came across this paper written by a colleague the paper mentioned a method that they use in the shallow lakes in China where they can catch 80% of fish on a, a regular basis. And to Duane, that was really intriguing. 
and Duane thought, I've got to go to China. So he started contacting Chinese colleagues, like fish people that he knew. And Duane's colleagues from Wuhan welcomed him and his team of U.S. scientists. What are your, um, their reactions to our cart problem? Because I don't know, just to imagine there's just such a difference between how we treat kind of these species in our two countries. Yeah, it, you know, it's hard for them to believe that we have all this fish and, and uh, we consider it a problem. Uh, yeah. the, and we probably have more of, more of these fish, at least in the wild, uh, than they do in the wild um, in oh. China. Huh. Um, they do raise a lot of the fish in farms, right? But in terms of wild fish, we probably have more than they do uh, by a great, great number. Wow. Um, and, you know, the other thing that they see on the, on the television and stuff is this jumping behavior that they have here and when they jump out of the water and hit people in boats and all that. Yeah. And they find that a little difficult to believe that it's not a hoax because they don't <laughs> behave that same way in China. Isn't that wild that they don't jump in China? Like, that's kind of the thing that everyone knows about big head and silver carp here is like, they're the jumping fish. They hit people. Isn't that weird? They jump. Yeah, that's the whole thing. <laughs> they slap people in the face. <laughs> that's like a fundamental part of the carp experience. I can't believe that that doesn't happen <laughs> in China. Exactly. And Dwayne kind of said they don't really know why. Yeah, Yushin said that one theory is that the carp are just so much more dense here that we're in these lakes in China, they have way more room to spread out and maybe they're, I don't know, there's something like stressful about, there's something about being in such close proximity to all these other fish that like triggers this behavior that like would never happen in like the population densities they see in China. Yeah. Another theory that Duane had was just that like the carp that happened to be imported to the U.S. were just particularly jumpy and then they started reproducing. And I thought that was a, a really funny theory. <laughs> the jumping. <laughs> they're just really jumpy. Like They have a jumping gene. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like there are certain humans that are like good at acrobatics and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, so Duane has been to China now four times, and he ended up meeting up with Yushun, and since then, they've been doing research together, and they've formed this partnership that they um, are still collaborating today. Now, they're part of a network of researchers who study and compare the Yangtze River and the Mississippi River, because both of these rivers are really important to their countries, and they also both have carp, but in really different contexts. Their interdisciplinary work addresses ecologic and economic challenges along both of the rivers. I, I guess the, the thing from both sides we, we like a lot is the real exchange. You know, I mean, people, they come to here to visit the rivers and lakes, we go to there with the rivers and lakes and talk with the local people. That's a very important part and we loved it a lot. So one thing that they were trying to accomplish was helping people in the U.S. develop strategies to control all these carp that are in the lakes, like kind of exchanging 
a method that Chinese fishermen might have for capturing carp. And also, they wanted to help China reestablish carp in their lakes and rivers. As we said, carp are under threat from a lot of fishing and carp stocking was one solution. When Duane got to China, they went out to these enormous lakes that they have that are on the floodplains of the Yangtze River. And they treat these lakes like giant fish farms. So they stock these four species of carp every summer and they let them grow and then they harvest them. And so what we decided to do was, you know, my Chinese colleagues in Wuhan, um, they uh, were extremely helpful and uh, they set me up with some uh, companies that do this kind of harvest. Um, and they were wonderful to us. They brought us in, they showed us how they do these things, and they talked about all the different ways. Um, you know, different farms did things in slightly different ways. Yeah. It was um, incredible, and they were just really welcoming and, and very um, nice for them to share their proprietary methods that they've developed over years for their companies with us. They witnessed this fishing process called the Unified Method, and the unified method is done over the course of months, but that's ideal because in China, they don't want to harvest all the fish in one day because at the markets, they sell really fresh fish. So they want to like be able to harvest a portion of the fish every day. These fishermen are the people that know these methods the best. Those guys are, have a lot of experience in us, you know, practical experience. So what does the unified method actually look like? Yeah, so imagine one of these big lakes and it has a forest of bamboo poles sticking out of its surface and they have nets that stretch between each pole so the nets kind of divide the lake into smaller cells and so they start from one side of the lake and they drive fish from cell to cell um, they like, they're able to drive the fish by making like noise on the boats, like pounding on the bottom of the boat and this scares the fish. So the fish kind of get driven from cell to cell and they'll like close off the, the back of the cell once the fish are in there. And so that way they can, they can control the fish and kind of drive them from one side of the lake to the other. And so the fish end up being more concentrated and they're easier to harvest that way. It's a really time-consuming and labor-intensive process to do this, but it's also a super effective way to harvest fish. And it allows them to harvest the fish every day to bring to the markets. In, in a situation where we had, you know, there were two scientists and we brought it also along with us, a commercial fisherman from the United States. And we all sat down in a room with these companies that um, do this harvest and they were in the room there were those of us from the United States that spoke no Chinese and there were a couple of scientists from China in the room that were helpful um, and they had in, in this whole thing and they speak spoke English and Chinese and then there were all these guys from the these fish farms that spoke no English but yeah. it was remarkable how often that we didn't need any translators. Uh, we just we had a bunch of guys in the same room that all spoke fish. And it was an incredible experience. Uh, just being there, we poking fingers at maps and drawing on pages and using pencil and paper and 
we didn't really need yeah. uh, translation very often. Yushin remembers that too. Um, he said that there were times when it was so hard to translate ideas from one language to the other, and then the two groups would just rely on drawings and hand gestures to make their points. Yeah, that's the magic saying, you know, you know, at least we are all fish people, you know, <laughs> fish, fish people have the fish language. They all spoke fish. I love that so much. There is one language issue in particular that has made efforts to exchange ideas between the U.S. and China especially complicated. Duane and Yushun will explain after the break, and we'll also see if we can use this unified method in a completely different country. The Wisconsin Coastal Atlas is your one-stop shop for information about Wisconsin's Great Lakes coast. Want to learn more about the lakes around you? Or maybe you're a researcher looking for spatial data? With the Wisconsin Coastal Atlas, you can browse interactive maps, share open source spatial data, or find the tools you need to make informed management decisions. Find the Coastal Atlas by visiting wicoastalatlas.net. Water Research Mysteries, teachers connecting kids with the Great Lake in their communities. Erosion and Dangerous Currents, these are just some of the stories offered by Wisconsin Sea Grant and the University of Wisconsin Water Resources Institute. A monthly podcast series, Wisconsin Water News, highlights stories previously available only in print from these programs. Series narrator and science communicator Marie Zwickoff brings the stories alive by featuring in-person and phone interviews with the people behind the news. Listen and subscribe to Wisconsin Water News on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or at seagrant.wisc.edu. So we've talked about the problem with the term Asian carp a little before, but it's worth bringing up again. And it's something that, as a scientist on the American side of the Yangtze-Mississippi collaboration, Duane thinks about a lot. In the U.S., the term refers to any of these four different types of fish or it could refer to like any combination of those fish existing together. And there's a lot of like inconsistency about how that term is applied, even within the scientific community and in like state laws and stuff. Like it's used and not really specified what is being included in, in that definition. How do you translate the term Asian carp from English to Chinese? Like, would this term Asian carp? make any sense in in Mandarin? According to Duane, in China, the direct translation of Asian carp would actually mean common carp in Mandarin, which here in the U.S. refers to a completely different type of fish. That's also nice. Yeah, I can see how that would be really confusing, because if American scientists are using the term Asian carp and Chinese scientists are hearing common carp, those are obviously different species, and we we treat them differently. Right. They have different impacts on ecosystems. They don't have the same relationship with each other. I mean, they're just like a different type of fish. Yeah. In China, these four fish go by a completely different name. For uh, four domestic fish, or four family fish, that's what we call it in, in China. So four domestic fish. Right, yeah. And beyond that, the term just seems like it has to be so culturally loaded. Calling these fish Asian carp is 
kind of xenophobic. Yeah, and it's interesting to consider how that might influence management too when you have like things that are obviously foreign because they include those places in their names versus other species that are also invasive but don't have that place name. The term Asian carp kind of exploits cultural anxieties and xenophobia that we might have in this country. Yeah, it's like, what do we view as um, like an invader? Right. And how do we like yeah. signal that? The term, we, we did not use the Asian carpets before, you know, it's kind of hard way. And, and ESCO, Yishun, something for Asian people, something for Asian, Asian carpets. Yishun, again, there are ethical issues, um, probably to calling some species, like to having biases in how you name species. It's like very inconsistent within management and scientific communities. Some people in fisheries do not use the term. There's a bill that has been brought to committee a few times in in Minnesota that um, would make it, would ban the term Asian carp from state statutes. So instead of saying Asian carp, you would have to actually say what carp you were talking about. Yeah, and didn't they say in Minnesota, like instead of saying Asian carp, they said use the term invasive carp. But there's people that have a problem with that term as well. What's the problem with that term? Invasive carp then could mean a lot more than just Asian carp. Like if you're saying invasive carp, you could also mean like common carp, which don't pose the same like immediate threat as silver and big head carp invasion, you know? Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and according to Duane, using the phrase inconsistently just makes resource management and not to mention collaboration with people in China so much more confusing. Um, yeah, it's a difficult issue, but it sounds like calling them by their species name, like specifying silver and big head carp, is a pretty good solution and gets your point across. So back to China, Duane and the American scientists are out in the aquaculture ponds and they're seeing the unified method for the first time. And this method, it works great for the Chinese harvesters that they visited. As I mentioned, it's, it's a really efficient method. Is that something that they could take back to the US and try on our rivers and lakes? Yeah, that was the, kind of the whole idea is how can we use these methods on our lakes? We were able to take some of those concepts and develop a method that we call the modified unified method. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do the whole process much faster. We use technology that they don't use in China. Um, mm-hmm. You know, We use side scan sonar instead of gill nets to tell where the fish are. Mm-hmm. We use, um, you know, I use broadcast sound and electrofishing uh, to drive the fish, whereas they mainly get in there uh, with um, boats and bang around and, you know, try to spook the fish with just banging on the surface with uh, pipes and and things trying to scare the fish away. Whereas, Uh you know, we've got loudspeakers that that go in the front of the boats and they're extremely loud. In fact, one of our biggest problems uh, that we have with incorporating this technique into the United States is what do you do with this enormous pile of fish that you can catch mm-hmm. when you bring the, the fish to the bank? You've got, so you've got 
quarter million pounds of fish there on the bank. What are you going to do with it now? It takes days to just deal with that quantity of fish. So now we do use the modified unified method on a lot of American waters. And there were a few changes that we had to make bringing it here, like a lot of Americans wouldn't wouldn't appreciate a giant bamboo forest with nets like within their lake that they want to boat on. So we don't permanently install the nets, but we use those methods um, now to capture carp and try to get down the population. But it just is happening so much faster. Yeah, um, because in China they do want to get a few out, you know, get little populations of carp out every day, but here it's like, let's just get them all, all at once. These are invasive fish that we don't want around anymore. So they are able to take like tons and tons of fish out at once. And the Im this image of all these fish going into a dumpster or even, you know, going to be used as bait or dog food is is pretty wild. Especially considering that in China where these carp are from, they're actually threatened species, and we're just taking them out in mass and not even able to use them all. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's uh, what when we when we know that uh, you know what what we trying to to say and to do is let's go there and get them back to here. <laughs> Here, you know, we just, you know, we wish we have this much fish, <laughs> like in, in, in the sea and the Great Lakes. Yeah, it would be ideal if we could just take all of our fish and somehow get them live back to China so they could use them for restoration. But it's not the easiest thing to do is ship tons of live fish halfway across the world. Even though Duane mostly works with these fish as a really big nuisance, he still has a lot of respect for these carp. They're really amazing, wonderful fish. I just wish they weren't here. That's the problem. <laughs> Duane and Yushun agree that opportunities to study these river systems together and exchange ideas through collaborations like this one strengthen science. Yeah, so within the last 10 years, there's been this this effort to look at these two rivers and two countries that didn't have a huge history of collaborating, like looking at fish. And so they've started doing these symposiums that they'll rotate between like hosting them in the US and in China, where researchers from both countries take a trip over to, um, to look at the other people's habitats and have a big symposium where they talk about these fish along with other things like water quality and stuff. And like one country struggles so much with, with managing one fish that's super invasive and or trying to protect our biggest river system. But it's like all kinds of other countries will have kind of analogous rivers and maybe, you know, looking back to where these fish came from and the people who know them best, we can we can collaborate. So we, you know, I have a long-term relationship with these Chinese colleagues, and it has been very productive on both ends. We have uh, one book published and another one on the way. Uh, we've been working with those colleagues, uh, those 
scientific colleagues for a long time. I did, in fact, host uh, some of those um, commercial fisher types. We had a, a meeting here in the United States, and I got to bring a few of those you know, guys over here. We had a, um, a, <laughs> a meal at our house where, you know, of course, I have some ponds at my house, and so we went out and caught mm-hmm. some bass and bluegills. And, um, and they, we cooked them up at the house, and it was a, we had all kinds of Chinese ways of preparing these fish. Um, <laughs> well, we're dealing with the expansion of carp. China is also dealing with its own invasive species. One thing that was really surprising to me was that smallmouth bass are actually really invasive in China. And they were brought over because they're so abundant in North America and people in China thought that they could be valuable for food and for fishing. And now they are, their population has really, really taken off. You know, this world is just too small. You know, people have to work together and, you know, um, trying to make things better. Just a quick note as we wrap this up, we'll have some recipes for cooking Asian carp linked on our show notes, so check it out on our website. Introduced is produced and hosted by Bonnie Willison and E. Sydney Wydell. Please subscribe, rate, and review, or share this podcast with a friend. You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant on Twitter at UWISC Sea Grant and on Facebook at University of Wisconsin Sea Grant and Water Resources Institute. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions and comments to bonnie at aqua.wisc.edu. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and on the Sea Grant website. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.